0: If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah. We are no longer in the book of Romans. We spent about two years together in that glorious book. And now we are going to turn to a a short series that I've entitled The Coming Messiah, uh, in which we will look uh, at the prediction and the arrival of, of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9. If you don't know where Isaiah is, it's about in the middle of your Bibles. You can go into the Old Testament. If you can find the Psalms, continue to turn right. Isaiah is the first of what are called the major prophets. And he is often called the Gospel of Isaiah because he so clearly prefigures the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look this morning at chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff of his oppressor, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, let's ask for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would open up your word to us, that we would not just hear a familiar text, that we would not just hear seasonal thoughts rather, that we would be confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be encouraged by who He is and what He has done. This we ask in Christ's precious name, amen. Well, the season before Christmas is often called Advent, and that refers to the first coming ...of our Lord Jesus Christ. Advent means coming from the Latin. And so Advent or Christmas is the consummation of the first phase of God's redemptive plan... ...that He announced way back in Genesis. The second phase we celebrate at Easter. The atoning death and the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the final phase will be the second coming... When Jesus returns to make all things new and to bring his people to glory. But there is no glory without the advent. There is no reconciliation without the advent. So we rightly look back to this event as the wonderful and gracious provision of our Lord. In this series, we're going to take a brief look at who the coming Messiah is. In these first two weeks, we're going to look at the prophet Isaiah and his prophecies of the Messiah who was to come. This week, we'll look at the Messiah's name. Next week, we'll look at the Messiah's character from the prophet Isaiah. And then in the third week, we'll look at the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the one who was prophesied, Jesus Christ, in the Gospel of Matthew. And then in the new year, we will look forward to a glimpse... ...of our Messiah King by looking at Psalm 24 together. Now, Messiah is a Hebrew term that means anointed one. In Greek, its translation is Christ. That's where we get Christ from. It means the anointed one. Christ is more than just Jesus' name. It is a title that describes His mission and His purpose... His purpose and His mission are to redeem a people and to bring them to God. And so we start this morning by looking at the Messiah's name from Isaiah chapter 9. I'd like us to see three things from our text this morning. First, the need for the Messiah. To understand why the Messiah comes, we must understand the need that He meets. Secondly... The Messiah's name tells us who He is. We know who the Messiah is from His name. And then thirdly, the Messiah's name tells us what He does. The work of the Messiah is laid out also in His name as we see here in the prophet Isaiah. The need for the Messiah. The Messiah's name tells us who He is. And the Messiah's name tells us what He does. Now, as we look at this question of the Messiah, who is the Messiah, we must understand that this is an important question. It may be, perhaps, the most important question that you will ever consider. The Bible tells us much about the Messiah, even before his birth. And one of those ways that the Bible tells us about the Messiah is by giving us his name. Now in the Bible, a person's name tells us a lot about that person. It is not unusual for someone to have more than one name in the Bible. A group of titles or descriptions that are assigned to them. And so it is also with the Messiah. And so Isaiah here in a prophecy that he wrote 700 years before the birth of Christ does exactly that. He tells us about the Messiah in his name. But he starts with a context. To really understand the Messiah, we need to understand the reason for the Messiah. And that is, if the anointed one is sent by God on a mission, what is his mission? Why is his mission needed? After all, how could we come to know the Messiah apart from what he came to do? And so Isaiah tells us first in verse 2, the need. For the Messiah. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, this is bad news. A people are in darkness. Now, we have to understand how prophecy works here. When the prophets write, they describe future events... And they describe them with such certainty, such vividness, that they will often use a past tense. As if these things have already happened. That's how certain it is that they will come about. Now, that's what Isaiah is doing here. He says they have seen a great light. And on them has a light shone. But those things haven't happened yet. The Messiah hasn't come. He's still predicting it. So I don't want you to be confused, but I want you to see the vividness of Isaiah's vision. The certainty of it coming about. What's really happening is instead there is a people walking in darkness. In a land of deep darkness. Now there is an immediate context for this. As Isaiah is writing, it has not been very long since the empire of Assyria has come into Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And defeated them and taken most of the population of Israel off into exile where they will never be heard from again. And then the Assyrians went a step further to bring peoples from far lands into Israel to mix them in with the Israelites to obliterate the distinct nature of the people of God. So this is a dark time. Now you remember there were two kingdoms but the situation isn't a lot better in Judah. In Judah, there was rampant idolatry and superstition. As a matter of fact, the very king of Judah sacrificed his own children by casting them into the fire to the false god, Moloch. Idolatry at the highest levels. There was social unrest. There was political unrest. And there was a looming war on the horizon. And for all appearances, that war would end exactly the way that the war with Israel. It was a very dark time. Isaiah did not have to convince his hearers that the times were dark. But this is also a part of the larger picture of the state of mankind. When Isaiah says that people walk in darkness, that's just as true today in Katy, Texas, as it was in Judah. People are walking in darkness. Now, when the Bible talks about walking, you must recall that it is not just a way of describing getting from point A to point B without a vehicle. No. Walking describes our way of life. It is an image of the life that is lived. It's how we spend our time. It's how we think. It's how we act. It are the things we do. It is our whole mode of life. And so when Isaiah says there are people walking in darkness, he means they're living a life. That is marked by darkness. And so people. Including us. Walk in darkness because the Lord has hidden his face. Back when our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden. They were cast out of the presence of God. They did not live as God intended. Sin entered into the world. And by it death. And the world was changed forever. Now we see this. And we have come to think that it is natural. It is natural that people die. It is natural that there are natural disasters. It is natural that people fight and war. But that's not the way it was intended to be. It's actually all unnatural. It's against the intention of God. There is a break in the relationship that people have with God. There is not supposed to be a distance with God. There is not supposed to be pain in our lives. And this darkness <coughs> is a great burden. This word darkness does not describe a temporary condition. I think often when we think of darkness, we just assume it's temporary. Because we live in a time and a place where even in the darkest of nights, when all the lights are out and it's dark, we can dispel the darkness with one flick of a switch on a wall. And it's gone. We think of darkness as temporary As leaving at our bidding. But that's not what this word means. That's not what people experience. It is a deep, impenetrable, depressing shadow that surrounds people. Now think about what darkness means. Darkness is confusing. In the darkness, you can't see what you need to see. In the darkness, you lose your orientation. Darkness is dangerous. You are at risk in the dark. But darkness also describes the heart apart from God. Apart from God, our understanding is lost. We don't really know who we are. We don't really know what the world is. And we certainly don't know who God is. That's one way to describe sin. Living as if God doesn't exist. Fumbling around in the dark. The Bible often describes sin that way as blindness, as darkened hearts. That is the situation of all people before they meet the Messiah. But the situation is even worse than we first think because some people might say, well, darkness isn't so bad. I'll get used to it. My eyes will adjust. So Isaiah continues to describe people's need for the Messiah even further. We live in darkness and we are oppressed by the forces of darkness. We are a people under oppression. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Those who dwell in the land, verse 2, dwell in deep darkness. So this is a story of oppression and of deep darkness. And when Isaiah uses this word, deep darkness, it's the same word that's used in Psalm 23 to describe the shadow of death, in the valley of the shadow of death. Isaiah wants us to see that the world around us is filled with disaster, with calamity, with danger. The world is not a place that is good and fair. Justice does not always prevail in the world. Now, do you remember when you first learned and realized that life was not fair? Maybe you were a young person. And you said those immortalized words of young people to your parents, well, that's not fair. And the response that you got, which you may not have given to your children, is get used to it. Life's not fair. Right? We know life isn't fair. Not everyone gets the promotion they deserve. People get sick for no reason that we can discern. Challenges come to us not because of something we've done wrong. Life is not fair. People treat us harshly or wrongly when we've done nothing to deserve it. Does that frustrate you? Does that anger you? Isaiah goes on again as we've seen in verse 4 to describe what we need to be delivered from. We need to be delivered from the yoke of his burden. The yoke is a symbol of slavery and a lack of freedom. The yoke was put on an animal or a slave to make them bear a burden that they were unwilling to bear. It's a sign of a lack of freedom. Of bondage. And then there is the staff. That is the reminder of a ruler who does not care for your well-being. A reminder of harsh treatment. To see that staff is to know that you are under another's authority who is not for you or caring for you. And then there is the rod, the rod that's used to punish anyone who gets out of line. Now, these images are sharp for us, but they would have been even more so to Isaiah's audience. They would have hearkened back to Egypt and the slavery that Israel was under. Oppression and violence. Isaiah goes on in verse 5 to remind us of the violence of oppression that is in this world. Of war and of death, of pain and in anguish. We see it every day. We just heard this morning in our prayers of a young man gunned down. The world is a place of violence and death and oppression. And so we cry out for deliverance. We want to be free from this oppression. We don't want to accept that this is the way the world should be. Now it's important for us to see that the world is a broken place filled with sin. But maybe it's even more important to see That it is so because of us, because of our actions, because of our selfishness, because of our rebellion against God and our sin. We have a great need for a Messiah. Well, when we see our need, then we can begin to look to the one who will deliver us. And this is why Isaiah paints such a black picture of darkness and dread death, and oppression. He wants us to see the great hope of the coming Messiah. In fact, if we look closely, his description of need is actually in the context of that need being met. The people who dwell in great darkness have seen a light. They have had a light shine on them. The burden of the oppressed have had their yoke and their rod and staff broken. How? How has our need been met so simply and yet so profoundly? Look at verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. That is how our need is met. This obviously brings our mind to Christmas. One of the wonderful things about Christmas is the image of the the child, of Jesus, the babe. We love children, don't we? They're beautiful. We love the way they draw us in. We love the way they make us feel. They give us hope. And so, the important thing for us to remember is not just that there is a child... It's not just the fact of the baby Jesus. No, it's who he is and what he will do. And so Isaiah gives us four sets of titles or names in verse 6. And each of these sets helps us to understand the Messiah. They help us to understand his purpose and his mission. They help us to understand who he is. And so the first one I want us to look at is the phrase The mighty God. The first thing that we must see is that the Messiah is God. This points us to the fact that Jesus is not simply a good teacher. He's not just a wise and kind man. But he is very God himself. In fact, the phrase mighty God is used by Isaiah directly of God in chapter 10, verse 21. There can be no doubt that the Messiah is divine. But this phrase also points us to the power of the Messiah. He is able. He is mighty. He is a strong warrior. He is unafraid, and He is able to meet the enemy. And that's exactly what we need. We face oppression from enemies and from our own sin. We need a strong and mighty Savior to free us. And the Son, the Child, the Messiah, He is the Lord of hosts. He is the one who possesses angelic armies. He is never found to be unable. What a comfort this is, isn't it? Because life is hard. Life is out of our control. There are so many things that are beyond our ability. Even as we battle against sin, we know how hard it is. Are you afraid sometimes that you won't make it? That you don't have enough? Then take heart. Look to the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. He is mighty God. He will fight your battles for you he will win the victory now the second name that we see here is everlasting father now this can be confusing to us because we know that Isaiah is talking about Christ Jesus the son and yet now here he calls him the father what's he doing here well don't be confused What is meant here is not a Trinitarian expression. The the Father is indeed distinct from the Son. They are not the same. They are equal in power and glory, but they are not the same. So what does Isaiah mean here? Father is a way of expressing that the Messiah will be the one who cares for his people. The job of a father is to have concern and care for his own. It is a kingly role modeled on that of God. It is not a coincidence that God is called a father as he cares for his people. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament. In Psalm 68, God is called the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. In Psalm 103, it said that God as a father shows compassion to his children... And later in this very book, Isaiah, in chapter 63, says, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. So over and over again, the scripture describes a father as one who cares for his own. So the Messiah is not just someone who comes to accomplish a mission. He is the one who cares for his people. And we need to hear this, because I think often we think of heroes or saviors as someone who has an mission to accomplish, and then they leave our lives. I think perhaps the prototypical view of this is from an old movie called Shane. I don't know if you've seen it, if you're old enough to have seen it when it first came out or watched it uh, in theaters or on reruns, But it doesn't really matter because there are so many imitations of this. You've seen this movie a hundred times anyway. And Shane is the hero who comes on a mission to protect the family in a town. And after the mission is over, he rides off into the sunset, never to be seen again. And there's this very poignant scene at the end of the movie where the little boy comes out and he yells, Shane! Shane! Come back, Shane! And of course he's not. He's gone. And I think sometimes we think of Jesus that way. We need Jesus to save us. We need to be freed from our guilt and our shame and our sin. And then Jesus does that work, and then he goes off into the distance, and we're left crying, Jesus, Jesus, come back, Jesus. But Isaiah tells you that's not so. Jesus is a father. He stays and cares for his people. Now notice that Isaiah gives him more than the name Father. He gives him the name Everlasting Father. Literally, he is the Father of eternity. His care and his rule have absolutely no end. Unlike earthly kings and rulers who pass away, who grow old, who grow weak and fail. Jesus is eternal. There was one reason why Israel wanted a king instead of judges. They wanted stability. They wanted permanence. They thought they could get that from an earthly king. They were wrong. But we can have that in our king. In the everlasting father, Jesus Christ. He reigns forever and ever. This is exactly what was announced by the angel to Mary in Luke chapter 1. When he was telling her that she would give birth to the Messiah. He says in verse 30. Do not be afraid Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom. There will be no end. That's who Jesus is. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. Now, there are two more sets of names that tell us about the Messiah. If mighty God and everlasting Father tell us who the Messiah is, then wonderful counselor and prince of peace tell us what he does. It is important to recognize... That Jesus is not just the king. He's not just the savior. He is the perfect king. He is the perfect savior. Now we've all experienced situations in which someone held a position that they were not able to fulfill properly. Someone who might be a teacher or a politician or a judge. It may even be that you were put in a situation where you have been unable to fulfill the demands that have been placed on you. And so you were worried. You were unsure, maybe even afraid. But this is not the case with Jesus. Jesus is the coming Messiah who fulfills the task that is given to him. There is no need to worry about Jesus. No fear when you are in Jesus. Jesus is our Counselor. That's something we need. We need someone to tell us the way. Someone to put us on the path of life. Someone to guide us through all the trials of life. And Jesus is the one who knows us better than ourselves. Jesus' counsel is perfect. It's designed for our benefit. It's designed so that we might have life. Isaiah has described the Messiah as the one who brings light. This is a picture of this point. Jesus is the one who brings light to you so that you may follow him and that in following him you may have life. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Jesus is the Is our counselor, but do not miss the first half of this title. It's important to know that Jesus is a counselor, but he's not just a counselor. He is the wonderful counselor. Now, this word for wonder in both its noun and adjective form are used over and over again in the Bible, specifically to refer to the Lord and his works. The idea is that the wisdom of the Messiah is far above any human wisdom. Solomon, in all of his glory, falls far short of the Messiah. It's what we might call supernatural, extraordinary, standing apart from all others. Now, this is appropriate, and it is what we need. What we need from the Messiah is divine, supernatural guidance. We need Jesus to take us away from sin and rebellion. We need Jesus to show us the error of our ways. We need Jesus more than we could ever realize. Do you trust Jesus and his word for your life? Or are you second-guessing his counsel? Do you think the Bible might just be making a bit of an overly dramatic deal about the situation of sinners and their need for Jesus? If so, you need to repent of doubting Jesus' counsel. Run to him. Listen to him. Obey his word. He is the one who has the words of life. The final title that we see in this passage is Prince of Peace. Now, once again, it describes Jesus in his work. Jesus is the one who makes peace. The Messiah has come to accomplish the work of redemption. He has come to reconcile people to God through his death on the cross. We see this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this title highlights the authority of Jesus. The word for prince is the same word that's used in Joshua 5 to describe the commander of the Lord's army. Jesus is not someone who just wants peace. He's not someone who can maintain peace. He is the commander of peace. Just like Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, he is the author and finisher of our peace. Peace with God. Peace with others. Now, what is this peace that Jesus provides? Often we think of peace as the absence of conflict or of war. But when we think of peace this way, we really miss out on the true nature of peace. Real peace is not uneasy. It is not tense. We might say that during the period of time of the Cold War, there was peace. In the sense that there was no peace active worldwide war but no one would say that was a time without tension without fear you had drills where children would go underneath their desks to simulate nuclear attacks there was fear that war would break out all over the world all the time tensions were always at a high we had groups reminding us every other day how many Seconds to midnight, we were, and nuclear holocaust and the extinction of the human race. But there was no real war. But there wasn't peace. Peace is described in the word that Isaiah uses here shalom. It means wholeness, it means security, it means so much more than the absence of conflict. And the Messiah, Jesus Christ, brings a peace that surpasses all social and political efforts. He is at one with God, and He is at one with His people. He reconciles sinners like you and me to God. Jesus puts it this way in John 14 Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled. Neither let them be afraid, because I give you peace. And then, of course, in John chapter 20, when he is reunited with his disciples, not once, not twice, but three times, he says, peace be with you. Do you want to know real peace? To have rest and hope? Then come to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ the messiah he has come that you might have peace he has come to put things right to make things whole no matter how hard things have been no matter how much pain you have experienced jesus can give you peace in conclusion It is remarkable that seven centuries before the birth of Christ, Isaiah could describe him with such clarity and accuracy. But we should not be surprised. Because this is not just the message of Isaiah. It is the message of the true and living God. Who planned from before time began to redeem for himself a people through the work of the Messiah. This Advent season, while you enjoy the food and the fellowship, the gifts and the surroundings, do not forget why we celebrate the season. We celebrate it because God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the Messiah and our Redeemer. We must never lose our focus. On Jesus. Let's pray.